This is Novel Marketing, the show that gives you innovative ideas on how to sell more books. With your host, agent, author, and marketing maven, Thomas Umstead Jr. And best-selling, award-winning author and marketing guru, James L. Rubart. Episode 185. I'm James L. Rubart, but please call me Jim. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. And in this episode, we're going to talk about overcoming the fear of your writing being wrong. And this actually comes from one of our listeners named Paul. And Paul wrote to us and said, I've attempted to write truth, that which you call nonfiction. And I'm afraid I'll be found in error and put to shame by well-known, more educated minds than me. And Thomas and I were talking about this and we said, oh my gosh, this would make a great episode and expand on that. So we're going to do that today. And and I, have to, Thomas, I have to start out simply by saying, when Paul wrote this to us, I said, I get this. I totally relate to this. This fear held me back for years, even to the point where I was scared to write a comment on a blog post because I was sure somebody else was going to come in and say, Jim, you don't know what you're talking about. That's so wrong. Let me correct you. Let me school you. Let me explain where you're in error. And that held me back from writing blog posts and then it held me back from writing books. And obviously I've gotten over that to some extent, but that's a very real condition. So I relate to Paul. How about you, Thomas? Have you ever felt that? I have. I mean, I've been, as we've talked about on the show in the past, the focus of quite a bit of criticism and outrage on, on the internet. And in many ways, we're, we are in outrage culture right now. People love being outraged about things. Uh, you know, Twitter you know, demands a new sacrificial victim on a weekly basis. And what's interesting is that they never remember the sacrificial victim from like two years ago or even two months ago. Uh, but during that week where you are the in the eye of the storm and the whole world is, you know, heaping uh, criticism on you it can be very scary. And the result of that is that everyone who sees that happening to you, is like, oh, I don't want that to happen to me. And when that happens, the trolls win. It's like losing the battle of Isengard, right? It's This is a <laughs> yeah. really scary thing. Like you can't let uh, the trolls win. And yet how do you fight that? And especially how do you fight the imaginary potential troll? There is this concept in war in the olden days of a fleet in hiding, that if you had your fleet in the ocean where no one knew where it was, or your enemy didn't know where it was, it was everywhere and it was nowhere. You never knew when a fleet would come over the horizon and suddenly your city would be under attack. And so you'd have to spread out your defenses and defend all of your cities together. That's a strange thought now with satellites, obviously, but for thousands of years, that was like a real fear. It's like the English have sent out a thousand ships or the Spanish have sent out a thousand ships and we don't know where they're going to land, right? Like that's very scary. And in many ways, outrage culture is that fleet in hiding as you're working on your book. You don't know if they're going to pay you any attention. You know, 99% of people, their books are ignored, right? They have, you know, a few dozen reviews on Amazon and just not a lot of attention and all of the fear and anxiety about the possibility of being at the focus of a firestorm they're not the focus of a firestorm. They're hardly the focus of a fire, right? There's just no attention at all. <laughs> right. and, and that, I think, is the more bigger thing to be concerned about. But yeah, it's tough being in a firestorm, and it can be very scary, especially especially when you bring it on yourself, right? You wrote something, and it turned out to be wrong. <laughs> and uh, that is really scary. And that's what we're kind of explore in today's episode, kind of how to navigate that, how to deal with it emotionally, but also how to deal with it practically. 
Um, now, Jim, do you think that it's the same now or if it's changed, this whole like outrage culture? Is this one of those things that people have always been more outraged, it's just easier to hear them? Or has something shifted with how social media and uh, society interact? I, I think it's the accessibility. It's much harder to walk up to some parent on the playground and scream at them than it is to scream at them with your horn in the car, right? Because that's just a car. There's not a person inside and you're so ticked off and you can honk your horn at a car. You wouldn't do that if you were right next to the person. Well, in the same way, the accessibility of the internet, where I can scream at you on Twitter or I can do it on Facebook or this kind of thing, even be anonymous sometimes if I want to, that has lended uh, itself to us doing this, I think, to a far greater degree in this culture. And and we have the chance to hear about it, right? Not that long ago. I'm, I'm talking 100 years ago. We just did not have the ability to throw an insult to somebody in New York unless we wanted to write a letter to the editor after the paper arrived the month, you know, a month before we send the letter and maybe they'll print it a month later. We simply didn't have the access. So potentially the feelings were there, but now we're in a culture where we can light that fire fire far more easily. Yeah, it, it, and it's not just for authors. It's really bad for athletes because it used to be if you are a New York Yankees uh, fan, your ability to heap criticism on a Texas Rangers pitcher is very limited, right? Like you can shout and he won't hear you uh, and you can send him a letter, but he may not open it. But now you can tweet that pitcher from across the country and tell him what a terrible person he is. <laughs> and uh, athletes face this criticism uh, from fans of opposing teams, but also from their own fans, often worse than their own fans, actually. And that's really difficult. Uh, so don't if you feel like you have it bad, just look at an athlete you admire and realize they have it far, far worse. <laughs> so let's get back to this idea of being right or wrong, because I've been thinking about this uh, as we've been preparing this episode. And a couple of things struck me. Number one, I was making breakfast and I like to watch documentaries while I'm making breakfast. So I just was looking around Netflix and I pulled up this documentary on Flat Earthers. And I started watching it. And Thomas, these people are absolutely 100% convinced that the earth is flat. And they've got all their arguments lined out for you to listen to. And maybe we even have some listeners who are flat earthers. Well, I tend to believe that the earth is not flat. However, these other people absolutely do believe that it's flat. Now, is there a possibility that the, that the world is flat? I suppose there potentially is. Maybe I am wrong. I don't think I'm wrong. But I could be. What I'm trying to say, Thomas, let me phrase it this way. Do I believe everything exactly in the same way today that I did 10 years ago? And the honest answer is no. My beliefs have changed over the last 10 years in a number of areas. So was I wrong then or am I wrong now? Consequently, if you're writing a book and you've got a strong opinion on something, you know what? Yeah, you might be wrong, but you might not be wrong. And if we can get rid of that, oh my gosh, I have to be right. Or, you know, if I'm not right and, and somebody corrects me and uh, that can be absolutely paralyzing. Yeah. And I think that being willing to be wrong, uh, like there's um, some pride there, right? Like uh, if your criteria for writing a book, whether it's fiction or nonfiction is I have to be 100% correct on everything I say then just give up and, and go do something else. Go be a plumber or an electrician or, you know, teach classes at a local community college because you're never going to be correct 
on everything, right? I could totally have a debate with myself from 10 years ago. In fact, my book, the book that like <laughs> right. changed the world is all about me changing my mind, right? I used to be this huge advocate for one way of doing uh, relationships, of getting single people married. And I realized I was wrong. I changed my mind and I advocated a completely different way of doing that. And uh, that's fine. Like in some ways, I have more credibility for the second book because of all of the advocacy I did for the first book, right? It was because I had the website advocating a certain kind of uh, approach that was what gave me the authority. And so I think being okay with being wrong is key. And it's also important to be humble in your language uh, where you are... um, not so aggressive in saying how wrong other people are. One, this is just a good approach when it comes to persuasion, uh, but it's also makes it easier if you are wrong uh, to admit that you're wrong. There's actually a great quote um, of Benjamin Franklin's that I would like to share uh, that goes along with this. And it's uh, in the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, but uh, and, and it's, I think, a selection from Franklin's um, autobiography. But uh, Franklin's a young man and this Quaker comes up to him and says, Ben, you are impossible. Your opinions have a slap to them for everyone who differs with you. Uh, they have become so offensive that no one cares for them. Your friends find they enjoy themselves better when you are not around. You know so much that no man can tell you anything. <laughs> Indeed, no man is going to try, for the effort would lead only to discomfort and hard work. Now, so you are not likely to ever know any more than you do now, which is very little. Uh, which, you know, what a rebuke, right? How would you respond if somebody came up to you with a rebuke like that? Well, here's how Benjamin Franklin responded. And I think this is in no small part, because this happened when he was young. This changed the whole rest of the course of his life. Uh, Why he's on our money. (laughs) Why he got the $100 bill. So here's what Franklin said. I made it a rule to forbear all direct contradiction to to the sentiment of others and all positive assertion of my own. I forbade myself the use of every word or expression in the language that imported a fixed opinion, such as certainly, undoubtedly, etc. And I adopted Mm. instead a I conceive or I apprehend or I imagine a thing to be so and so or it so appears to me at present. Uh, And he says, when another asserted something that I thought in error, I denied myself the pleasure of contradicting him abruptly and of showing immediately some absurdity in his proposition. And in answering, I began by observing that in certain cases or circumstances, his opinion would be right. But in the present case, there appeared or seemed to me some difference, etc. I soon found the advantage of this change in my manner. The conversations I engaged in went more pleasantly. No kidding, Sherlock. (laughs) The modest way in which I proposed my opinions procured them a readier reception and less contradiction. So here's here's I want to stop real quick and say this wasn't just helpful in his character and having better friends, but also was more effective in presenting his position. Because when you make it where the other person must admit that they're an idiot in order to agree with you, they will never agree with you. And this is really important to understand. You have to give people a path to come to your way of thinking without having to abase themselves in the process. Uh, So back to Franklin's quote, I had less mortification when I was found to be in the wrong and I more easily prevailed with others to give up their mistakes and join with me when I happened to be 
in the right. So I think that that is really key. And I think that that's really, and, and if you think about Franklin, right, he was one of the most influential Americans ever. Oh, without question. Right. He was, the, you know, the one that was the face of the United States in Europe for decades, uh, you know, procuring, pro- procuring uh, assistance in, uh, you know, getting the French to join our side and help us in the war for independence. He's one of only a small handful of people who are at both the signing of the Declaration of Independence and at the forming of the Constitution. Uh, you know, he was very, very influential. In fact, he was key in keeping America together because the two sides in the Constitution, convention, were at war with each other. Uh, in fact, there was four sides that were at war with each other. You had big states and small states and slave states and free states. And getting them to agree when they had four factions seemed like it was not going to happen and America was never going to happen. And yet Franklin was the one who uh, brokered the truth, so to speak, and found the path forward uh, for the institution. And how did he do it? By being kind with his words. <laughs> so I think that there's, and especially now in these days of uh, factions and everyone being at war with each other, this Franklin approach of being kind with your words and kind to your enemies is really unpopular. Uh, I mean, who's doing that right now <laughs> um, on any issue, right? Who can criticize somebody in a loving way? It's just not done. And yet when it is done, it is done so powerfully. It's actually more effective. Sure, you can fire up your own base by making enemies of the opposition, but you're not actually going to reach the opposition that way. End of rant. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel strongly about this, Thomas? I do. I do. Yeah, yeah. This is good. Yeah, it is good. So I like that. Number one, accept the fact that you might be wrong. And everyone's wrong, right? Go back and read a textbook from 50 years ago. It's like, oh my goodness, they they put this out as this is gospel and it turns out it's wrong. So accept the fact that you might be wrong and be okay with that. Everyone's wrong. It's okay. Number two, what Thomas just talked about, have the mindset of presenting what you believe, not what you know. This is the way it is. Things will go much easier for you. Number three, become an expert. In other words, read and read and read and read. The first time I heard this was from Seth Godin. And he said, oh my gosh, read 18 books. Read 18 of the best books on a subject. And by the time you're done, you will be an expert. And I know, Thomas, you've done this for marketing. This was years and years and years ago, but you said, I want to become a marketing expert. And you probably read 100 books at that point on marketing. And now I know you've read it even more. And so that feeling of, oh, I might be wrong. I'm not sure educate yourself, take the time to read everything that's out there. And what will happen is over time, actually fairly quickly, you'll go, you know what? No, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. Yep, that's really good. And you will start to form your own own core confidence about a subject. And becoming an expert really is about understanding when something is right or wrong. Often in the uh, minds of a beginner, somebody who's learning how to do something, they've discovered something that works and they assume that that thing that worked for them will work for everyone. And they start advocating this as it's the only way, right? I learned how to use Amazon ads and I became a bestseller. Therefore, using Amazon ads is the only way to become a bestseller. And it's like, well, Amazon ads worked for you because you've got a background in advertising. So you're able to do them yourself and do them easily. And you're in a non-competitive category and you got to it early before Amazon's were really crowded. Somebody who doesn't have those strengths isn't necessarily going to see the same 
results you see or social media, right? There, a few people got on social media early and because they got on social media early, all the new people followed them and had these huge followings. And we went around teaching that social media was the only way forward and that if you get started now, you can have the same results that they had, which is just not true. And as you do the reading, like Jim was talking about, and you read all of the books on a topic, and then you read the books that those books recommend, and then you read the books that those books recommend. As you read in those concentric circles, as you spiral out, spiral out from your topic, you, you can know basically what the entire conversation is on a topic, and you can know where your voice fits in. And it's often, you know, experts don't always agree, and you're not going to agree with everyone. And, you know, you need to be able to hold your head up if an expert is challenging you and be able to know what you're standing on. And you need to not be surprised by their argument. And uh, so often with nonfiction, I find that people are writing books, and they've only read two or three books on that topic, and they're not really up on the conversation overall. And they don't even know if what they're adding is new, right? There's like, oh yeah, a guy wrote a book 10 years ago saying the exact same thing. That I think is actually a bigger fear. And from a marketing perspective, it's a bigger challenge. Like, why should we need your book that said this when another book said it 10 years ago and it's you know got all this credibility and esteem and people are still buying it on Amazon. Um, and so, yeah, becoming an expert really is important. And as you do, you will gain confidence, but you'll also gain humility because you'll realize how much more there is to learn and how your earlier views were wrong often as you were gaining expertise. And you see this with mastery in all things, right? When somebody is a master, you know, do you see a man skilled uh, at his work? He will stand before kings and not before obscure men. And there's something that masters have um, in common with each other, regardless of the topic that I find really fascinating. And this just, a, we're kind of focusing on nonfiction because Paul is writing nonfiction, but this applies to novelists as well. And we talked about this a few episodes ago, where you need to be very well-versed in your particular genre. You need to understand the tropes. And that will give you confidence too in writing fiction. Even if you don't have a really strong theme that you're trying to get across, simply writing, knowing what's been done before, knowing what you're doing different with a particular trope will give you confidence in your writing. That's right. Another thing that's really helpful and something that I used extensively, in fact, we just did an episode on this a few weeks ago, so you can go back if you haven't heard it, and that is to use beta readers or what I called a research team. So when I wrote my book on dating and relationships, I put out the word for people to share their stories and we surveyed over 500 people. And those accounts that we got of people who'd experienced courtship, good and bad, 500 accounts was more than I could go through. That was like, I don't know, hundreds of pages or thousands of pages of you know, stories of people's experiences. And I used my some of my beta readers as a research team to help me research. And, you know, some people went and interviewed their grandparents or went to nursing homes and talked to folks. And uh, I surrounded myself with other people to challenge my ideas. We debated. Uh, we talked about this in the beta episode, so I won't go too much into it. But I found that really helpful. And it gave me confidence in my position that uh, the first time these ideas were being aired to the public was not in a paper book that cannot be revised. Right. I fought with them with my research team, and then I posted a lot of them as blog posts. And then later, it was when it went out as a printed book. Next idea is, remember that ultimately, you're just sharing an opinion. It's just your opinion on where you're at right now in life. Another issue that I find fascinating, and I talk to my son a lot about this, is climate change. There are people whose opinion is that climate change is happening and that what, well, yeah, I'll just say that, that climate change is happening and that 
man is partially causing this or fully causing it. There's other people that say, nope, it's not really happening. Um, and man has nothing to do with it. Both of these people will back up their opinion with scientific facts, and yet they can't both be right. So ultimately, this is an opinion that you're sharing. And if you can say, oh my gosh, I'm not sharing absolute truth. Well, you're not God, so you don't have absolute knowledge of everything in the universe. And you can kind of just go, yeah, this is just an opinion from what I've learned, from what I've read, people I've talked to. I have formed this opinion, and I'm writing this book to share my opinion. Yeah, talk about a topic where... uh Tensions are very high, right? Emotions are very charged. And yet those very highly charged emotions are what are making you, whichever side you're on, so distasteful to the other side. Like you realize that by telling the other side that they are villains, right? By saying, oh, because of climate change, you're hurting the poor. Because you don't believe in climate change, you're destroying the planet. Like by, by making them villains, you don't give them any room to come back to you, uh, to, to agreeing with you. Um, so I don't want to get into the actual debate, but regardless of what side you are, you listening, you can be a little kinder and it may help you in the long run. <laughs> and if you turn out to be wrong, it'll help you humbly go to the side that is right. <laughs> All right. So now let's talk a little bit about fear in general, uh, because often fear is the biggest challenge with our writing. And if you have that critic in your head, who's going to criticize you, the temptation is in your writing to add too much proof. Uh, Like, oh, if I can't convince you with one example, let me put in six examples. And it can kill your writing, where your writing gets so filled with qualifiers that you're not saying anything at all. And it's actually a poorly written book. So good writing does require courage. Uh, So while we're saying to be kind, that kindness doesn't mean that you can't still be courageous. In fact, you must be courageous for your writing to be good. So how do you navigate that, Jim? How do you navigate the anxiety and the fear? Well, I think you just said it, Thomas. Anxiety and fear, those aren't necessarily the same things, right? Um, We're not really dealing with fear here. We're dealing with anxiety. And by that, I mean, if you're worried about what somebody's going to say, you're dealing with the future, something that has not happened yet. So you're projecting into the future and saying, oh my gosh, uh, this person could say this, or this person could come a- against this, or, or it turns out that this is wrong. And you don't know. I mean, it, potentially, since we don't know the future, potentially somebody, everyone could come out and say, oh my goodness, you nailed it. Finally, somebody has written the ultimate treaties on this subject. Everything you say is true. Is that likely? No, it's not. But at the same time, you don't know that that isn't going to happen. And so if you can put yourself in the mindset of, oh my gosh, all I've got is now. That's all I have is right now. And I'm not going to let a projection of the potential or possible future affect what I'm doing in this moment. It will free you up to write that book of your heart, whether that's a book of fiction or whether that's a nonfiction book. Yeah, that's really good. And you just have to do the next thing. You know, Often we borrow trouble from the future. And we want to experience all of the sorrow of the future today. And my response would be like, but why though? <laughs> it's like today has <laughs> enough troubles of its own. <laughs> you don't need to borrow uh, trouble from t- tomorrow. And guess what? That doesn't reduce the trouble of tomorrow. Sure. Is tomorrow going to be terrible? 
it's probably not going to be the best. But it's probably also not going to be the worst. But it's got trouble. And if you combine all of the tomorrow's trouble together and experience them today, you'll be absolutely miserable because you'll have to then experience that trouble twice, right? You borrowed it from tomorrow, and then you have to. So you're experiencing it today, and then when you get to tomorrow, you're experiencing it today again. What a terrible way to live. So just do the next thing and don't worry too much about what tomorrow will bring. And finally, Thomas and I say this a lot in marketing, love me, hate me, just don't ignore me. Where you do not want to be is that three-star rating on Amazon. No, you want the one-star or you want the five-star. Love me, hate me, just don't ignore me. And that comes that applies to your marketing, but it also applies to your books. In other words, write the book that does have some emotional gravitas to it. And Thomas is a great example where, oh my gosh, he wrote a book that got people, started with a blog post got, that got people very um, emotional on both sides. And that's an okay thing. There's Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, there's a verse in the Bible that that you can apply to your writing and to your career. And that is, beware when all speak well of you. When everybody's just, yeah, whatever, you know, it's, yeah, it's milk toast, it's mediocre, whatever. You're not making an impact for in either direction. So I guess we encourage you to write that provocative um, book that starts discussions. And if you do it, like Thomas was talking about with the Benjamin Franklin idea in mind, you can actually become better educated. You can form relationships. I absolutely love the relationship between Michelle Obama and (laughs) George W. Bush. I love seeing that because these are two people who do not agree politically or philosophically on a lot of issues. And yet they have said, I respect you as a person. We are going to be in a relationship and we are going to learn from each other. And we're going to share candy. (laughs) You'll often find them slipping candy to each other. They'll be at some (laughs) state event or listening to long, boring speeches. And one of them will be handing candy to the other. It's it's really fun. Um, So, yeah, uh, in politics, uh, I used to be very active in the political world. We had a truism of don't believe your press. When you're new to politics, the press tends to love you. They heap adoration on you. And if you take that to heart, then you tend to also take to heart when they're hating on you. (laughs) And the the better thing is to not take your value from the press because the press is very fickle. And they'll you know worship you for something in one year and then criticize you for it the next year. And, and so, yeah, be careful when everyone is speaking well of you. And also, don't get too down when everyone is speaking ill of you uh, because outrage culture doesn't last and outrage culture doesn't matter. The fact that someone is outraged against you makes no impact on you. Their disapproval doesn't affect you unless you let it affect you especially when they're not your people, right? The people who don't read your kind of books are hating on you for writing your kind of book. Who cares? They don't read your kind of book. Uh, So yeah, take it all with a grain of salt. Thomas, we love, love, love our patrons. And we have a featured patron in this episode. Do you want to tell us about her? Yes, our featured patron is Lauren Lynch, the author of Time Drifter Fantasy Series, where readers can explore ancient civilizations from a Christian worldview. Uh, Lauren says her stories happen where the real world collides with the fantastic, and we'll have a link uh, to her books in the show notes. Lauren, thank you so much for being a patron. And if you're new to the Novel Marketing Podcast, our patrons get exclusive episodes and exclusive discounts on things like MyBookTable, our sponsor for today. MyBookTable is a plugin that helps you add an online bookstore to your WordPress website to rank number one on Google and to make extra money from sites like Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And 
our patrons save 25% uh, just as a thank you for being a patron. So uh, the Novel Marketing Patreon uh, page actually pays for itself. Many of our patrons have actually saved more money than they have spent. And so they're actually net positive, not counting all the free episodes that they get as a thank you for being uh, a part of the uh, program. And uh, uh, I have some quick news, actually, uh, Jim, that I'm going to be in Switzerland speaking at a writer's conference. Uh, so we're recording some episodes ahead of time. It's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. <laughs> somebody's got to fly. <laughs> and I'm taking my wife uh, with me. And we're going to go pop over in uh, Salzburg, Austria. We're taking a train. Uh, after I'm done speaking at the conference, we're going to go visit Salzburg, where her ancestors were exiled hundreds of years ago for having the wrong religion. Yes. So we're going to go back. We're going to retake Salzburg. Not really, but we're going <laughs> to. Are you taking Mercy with you? Or are you. Yep. We're going to be traveling uh, with a six-month-old baby. Right. Okay. That's bold. <laughs> yeah. So if any of you have travel tips on uh, traveling with a six-month-old, we are accepting any and all travel tips right now on uh, how to how to handle uh, long flight and long train rides. Uh, I hear that some uh, European trains though have like a toddler car uh, where all the kids can go and there's like a little playground. I'm hoping our train will have that. If not, We'll be in a train for nine hours of a six-month-old baby. So uh, anyway, but I'm looking forward to it. And if any of you are going to be, uh, if any listeners are going to be there, I'd love to see you at the conference. And uh, yeah, that's that's what's going on in my life. How about you, Jim? Um, Well, I've got my son Micah over here for about a week. He came over to visit Darcy and I. And so that's the biggest thing in our life. We love having him over here. So those of you who still have kids at home, uh, let me just say that whole thing about it going by faster than you ever imagined. Um, it does. So enjoy them now. And those of you who are like Darcy and I, empty nesters, enjoy it when they come back and visit. Oh, my baby. It's like every day she has something new. Like she just started, suddenly started growing her first tooth. And we're like, no, you're too small. It's like every day you're growing so fast. Also, when it comes to speaking, if any of you listening are in New Zealand, that is one uh, place I've not checked off on my speaking uh, tour yet. I'd love to visit Australia or New Zealand. So. Oh, me too. Bring, bring, bring Thomas and I, um, bring Thomas and I to New Zealand. We'll come. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we may not have the accent, but we know English good enough. I think we could get by. <laughs> anyway, you've been listening to James L. Rubard and Thomas Sumstead Jr. on the Novel Marketing Podcast, giving you innovative ideas on how you can promote yourself and your writing offline, online, and everywhere in between. Thanks for listening.